This is Why Change, the podcast for a creative generation. We are your hosts. I'm Jeff. Hola, hola. Soy Carla. It's Rachel here. What's good, y'all? I'm Ashraf. And I'm Madeline. Why Change is a podcast that brings listeners around the globe to learn how arts, culture, and creativity, especially as applied by young people, can change the world, one community at a time. You're invited each week to learn and laugh while exploring the question, why change? All right, let's get started. Welcome to the Why Change podcast. This is Carla Estela Rivera, and I'm here with Jeff Poulin. Jeff, how are you? Hey, Carla. It is good to be with you. It's been a while since we have caught up here on the podcast, but I've had the pleasure of seeing you in person and and chatting um, offline, which has been really nice. I feel like since we've last been on the mic, it is it is the fall here where I am in the world. It is a time of sort of harvest and bringing things to a conclusion in preparation of some winter hibernation. Um, and that feels good and interesting and all the things. I don't know. I'm sort of filled with like hope and possibility and also closure. Um, yeah, it's always one of those interesting moments of reflection at the end of the year. But how are things with you? Absolutely. I, I can't agree more. I'm ready to nest and I'm ready to reflect. This is always for me a time of intense cooking, intense family. And um, I have been going since September, um, travel and work, uh, Seattle, um, Portland, Oregon, Puerto Rico, Baltimore, Maryland, Washington, DC. Hey, everyone. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, you know, all of that, um, work and connecting with folks that that are doing incredible things um in the sector and um and and a lot for me to think about um including uh the arts administrators of color annual convening which happened on November 11th and 12th mm -hmm. where we brought together 300 artists and arts administrators of the global majority folks of color um, in, to Chicago uh, to engage in um, mutual exchange, co-learning, um, general cultural affirmation. And it, it was just, and celebration. It was just such a wonderful time to, to be together and, um, and, and, and for us to see ourselves in this work where, you know, we're often in this country very siloed in our work, whether it is just that we're working from home in virtual space or whether we're the only person of color within um, our organizations. And so um, I think this really is a nice bridge to the conversation we're about to have about um, this conversation with Natalie and Bronwyn about um, young adult youth councils right. in the arts which um, I was part of them as a teen, and I know you were part of them as well, Jeff. And um, they're super important. And I think that the work um, that they talk about is is really, really exciting. So um, why don't we jump in uh, to this interview that you had with them and and hear about the work that we're doing and, and we can catch each other on the other side and really reflect. That sounds good, let's do it. Cool. <laughs> 
Welcome, Natalie and Bronwyn. I am absolutely thrilled to introduce you to the Why Change podcast community, um, specifically to discuss your new report, which is called Agents of Change, Young Adult Advisory Councils at Arts and Culture Nonprofits. I mean, fairly straightforward. I know what we're going to be talking about, but I'm just so excited because this is my work. This is my jam. I, you know, I've been um, engaged in the youth leadership space most of the time in the arts and culture sector, but even beyond um, since I was a young person. So when I saw your report come across my desk, I immediately downloaded it, immediately read it, sent it to my colleagues, and then pretty quickly thereafter sent you all a note inviting you to be on the podcast. So I am so excited to talk about this. Thank you so much for being here. Absolutely so glad to be here. <laughs> So happy to be here. Thanks for having us, Jeff. <laughs> no, it is it is my pleasure. But so before we dive into the report, I'm hoping that you could each introduce yourself a little bit, share some of your background, what brought you to do this work, and you know how you even ended up where you are today in each of your unique positions. Natalie, why don't we start with you? Yeah, so it all started when I was in graduate school. Um, I was doing a project with the LA Zoo, um, helping them launch uh, a conservation council, which was basically a young adult advisory council with a, a larger focus on fundraising. And I was just so interested in the work, um, how participants uh were interacting with the organization and how the organization was reacting with them. And so I had written a paper about it in Bronwyn's class. Bronwyn was my professor at Claremont and she really loved it, I guess. I don't want to speak too much for her, but I think she really loved it. Um, and she asked me if I wanted to do a full study with the LA County Department of Arts and Culture. And so from there, um, we started working uh, for the last two years on interviewing uh, over 25 individuals for this study. And it's just been so wonderful and interesting and fantastic to meet all of these different individuals across the United States, right? We we focused on people uh, and a multitude of states. That was a part, a huge part of our methods as we wanted a diversity of age and location and type of organization. And so it was uh, truly incredible. And then uh, I can continued to work on that even after graduate school. Um, and I even in my current work, I am in fundraising at Santa Clara University, um, which I love. I, I bring it into everything that I do. I always, you know, bring these insights uh, when I'm working with students, when I'm working with families, and it's been hugely impactful for me. So that's kind of where it started for me and, and where I am now. And I'll pass it off to Bronwyn. All right. Um, I'm Bronwyn Malden. I am Director of Research and Evaluation at the Los Angeles County Department of Arts and Culture. Um, I also have an artistic practice. I'm a writer and a zine maker. Um, and I also have a democracy practice. I'm part of an organization called Artists for Democracy, where we're trying to build a better democracy, uh, working with artists and art students. And in addition to that, I'm adjunct faculty. I teach at um, in the Center for Business and Management of the Arts at Claremont Graduate University, and that's the Arts Administration Master's Program. So that is where I met Natalie. I uh, was teaching a research methods class. Natalie was in the class. She 
submitted a proposal, the final project in the class each year is to propose a research project based on everything you've learned throughout the semester. And Natalie proposed this really interesting idea to look at young adult advisory councils, specifically in arts and culture nonprofits. And, um, and I knew about her work with the LA Zoo, so I knew she had like a good grounding in it. Um, her proposal was really a strong research proposal to do interviews with people who have experience, you know, that being part of young adult advisory councils. And um, in my in my job at the Department of Arts and Culture, we have partnered with CGU and worked with former students a couple of times. So this is so I reached out to her and said, hey, do you actually want to carry out this project? Because I think you could and I will walk you through the process and you will learn as you go. And at the end of the day, you'll have a uh, a, a, a paper, a credit, you know, a, a, a a, pro a published report uh, with your name on it, um, and you'll learn learn as you go along. And uh, that process went really, really well, and that led to this, I think, really very strong report that we have. I love hearing these stories, and it's not very different at all from the way that I engage uh, with my students and the collaboration that happens. In fact, you know, most of the collective at Creative Generation were folks that were uh, in my class or we were students together or um, we've done things, done stuff. And that is a beautiful bond between two professional, two practitioners um, in this space. But before we go into that, we'll come back to that. I want to talk about the report. So from each of your perspectives, uh, I'm kind of more research focused, a more practitioner focused, what are the biggest takeaways for our sector in arts and culture and education um, and even some social change? What should our listeners know about the role of young adult advisory councils within arts and cultural organizations? Uh, yeah, just I think one of the biggest things is that there's such a thirst and hunger for it um, among both, I think, participants in organizations, but mostly participants. They're so uh, wanting to be involved, learning about arts education, learning about the governmental side of it, learning about every aspect of things that impact them. Um, that was something I was so I'm not surprised about. I had hoped it been there, but it was just so strong. It showed through so much. Um, that was one of my biggest takeaways. Um, something else, uh, and we have it actually in our report, is a bunch of recommendations for different sectors. So, um, you know, organizations, art agencies, grant makers, and participants. So we have kind of a, a general overview of our takeaways and things, uh, best practices for them um, going forward. But I think one of the biggest things that both Bronwyn and I have talked about um, a lot is just being intentional about why you're creating these groups mm -hmm. is organizations really have to know what their goal is in creating these and how they're able to support it and how they're able to create uh, check-in opportunities so they're ensuring that they're meeting those goals. And so, for example, if the goal of having one of these groups is really DEI-focused, you need to state that you need to have it in every aspect of what you're creating. So it's not an initiative. So it's very ingrained in what you're doing. And I would say those are the, the top two biggest things is that people really are excited about groups like this. They want to participate, um, but there has to be 
uh, a good setup for it. People have to uh, really be organized in the way that they manage these. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, that I think the intention and really designing around that intention, um, uh, and at the same time, and this is really interesting, leaving room for the youth as they come on board to also lead. You know, it's not just hey, the, the adults in the room are going to tell everybody what to do, but you kind of have to do that at the front end. But then once you start bringing youth on board. That you've got to have, you know, that that it can't just be about achieving your own goals as an organization. It has to be about the goals of, and and opening your mind to new ways of doing things, new things, new ideas for doing things, and maybe even trying things that you tried in the past and you thought they wouldn't work. And somebody's got the enthusiasm to try it again. Like you try things again that w- didn't work twenty years ago. Um, the other the, the other finding I'd want to call attention to was the concept of space. And mm. I think Natalie, folks, I, I do want to say Natalie conducted all the interviews. 25 interviews, Natalie? Yes, ma'am. 25 interviews <laughs> with um, uh, half of them were participants, uh, young people who participated in these kinds of advisory councils. Half of them were people who run the advisory councils. It's from all across the country. So really like merging a ton, just, there's just a ton of knowledge and wisdom from from the, the grassroots. So the folks who are actually doing this work in the report. And they talked about space, both physical space, I mean, this is something that that an organization, especially an organization that owns or rents a facility, really has and should think about young people in their space in different ways, but also kind of mental and psychological space, you know, so that that young people really feel welcome, really feel like there is a place for them to expand their own minds. So mm-hmm. so those are two things that, that that finding as well is is really interesting to think about. Yeah, surely I I. You know, there's something that you both sort of hinted at that I just want to to name and sort of call out and maybe ask a question about, which is sort of this this notion that in young adult advisory councils, which is what you studied, there's an honoring of diverse ways of knowing. And that could be um, because of age and, and generation in the world. It could be uh, cultural backgrounds or heritage. It could be... Um, tenure in a sector, right? You know, we all get into our work and speak in alphabet soup acronyms, right? That if if a young person isn't there, they they have a different approach. Um, so I wonder about what you specifically found in that space, Bronwyn, that you were talking about. Um, what are the ways that folks were honoring different ways of knowing in, in maybe youth culture or in more systematized um, longitudinal ways of knowing built into our systems. How was that addressed? I, I'm going to give you one. It's a small example, but it's such a, a an indicative example. Um, and that is bathrooms. Mm. I'm Generation X. We didn't think much about bathrooms until very recently. Young people are really and and it came up in one of the inter- one or more of the interviews, Natalie, about that. Is there a gender neutral bathroom for available on the, mm-hmm. in the space? So this is something that young people bring in. This is such a no brainer for them. And for, for folks who are older in an organization, 
that that just might not be something that's top of mind for them. So one small example of, of a way that a young person can bring a new idea into an organization and make re real change that opens up a space and makes it more welcoming, not just for young people, but for anyone. Natalie, anything to add? Yeah, I would say that was a, a wonderful one Bronwyn shared. Some, another one that stood out to me was a, a participant saying, you know, they had food that I could eat there. Mm -hmm. They thought about this. A lot of places I go, that they're not halal. They're not, I'm not able to eat them. And it wasn't even a question when I got there that they had already considered this. And that was hugely impactful to this one individual. Um, some kind of more on the emotional side too of it, a lot of it was um, really incredible that these groups would teach participants or they would have workshops for participants to learn about how to respond or have difficult conversations or there was a really a social emotional side of learning mm -hmm. as well that they focused on um, that I had no clue was a part of these before this process started. And so a lot of both managers and participants loved that aspect of it because they could see the change of participants when they first got in towards the end of their stint in the in the Young Adult Advisory Council saying they were able to come up to me and just so well say, like Bronwyn's example, like, hey, my friend came in they felt really uncomfortable. Is there something that we could do about bathrooms? Is this something mm -hmm. that we could talk to the board about? And they were able without fear and in total confidence and, and with, you know, backed up examples say, Hey, I think this would be really impactful. And being able to, to learn all those steps to get there was also pretty huge. So one more question about some of the findings, and this is based purely off of our discussion now, it's in the context, the, your report is in the context of arts and culture nonprofits, yet we haven't actually really talked about artistic practice yet in our conversation. So in what ways did you find that you, young adult advisory councils were actually using the greatest strengths of these young creatives and their organizations, being that artistic practice or cultural practice or creativity? How was that brought in across your sample? Um, I would say the biggest is uh, a lot of programmatically, uh, a lot of young adult advisory councils help build programming for organizations and having creative ideas or having uh, for events for different ways that they could market the events. One uh, incredible one was a student. They were putting on a, a I think it was a winter fall show, and um, they were thinking about how to market it. And the do I keep saying student? The participant uh, was uh, like, you know, in my community, we get most of our information from the deli and from the church. So I think that it would be really wonderful if we put up flyers there. And I think this should be how the flyers look like. I think it should have... Um, the image should be somebody that looks like me or somebody that looks representative of our group or our organization, because that's a really friendly face for people that we're trying to attract. And, uh, you know, putting it here, having it be bilingual. And they were mentioning that they got, you know, over 400 attendees, which was much larger than they've ever had previously for one of their events. So kind of bringing in those ideas um, for 
what they're doing. And I know that's not 100% arts and culture, but I think marketing has a huge creative design to it. Mm -hmm. that really falls into this uh, but just that creativity of thought of how they present things how they bring things to the community um, and stuff like that and I'll let Bronwyn go as I keep thinking of more examples. The other one that that comes to mind is the the conversation you had about designing space like allowing mm -hmm. oh, the, yeah. the the members of the council uh, to actually when there was a renovation in an organization going on mm -hmm. to actually give them a voice in what the space looked like and the design of it. And um, and I think that's just I mean, it, it, lucky that there was a renovation happening and how great that they took advantage of that opportunity mm -hmm. to to bring those voices in in that redesign. And I appreciate both of those examples so much because, you know, we're talking about the, the intersection of sort of marketing and culture and aesthetics or, uh, you know, design and, and almost like a, a youth centered creative placemaking, which is, I can get on that soapbox for hours, but it's so powerful because it's not like you're a visual artist. So make the flyer, or I grew up as a youth advisory council member and I was a tap dancer and they were like, oh, you know, go dance in the main street. Like, no, you know, that's not what, <laughs> that's not what we're doing here. Um, and so I really appreciate that it's recognizing sort of the whole person and and really engaging in the, the cultural aspect, not just a, a tokenized kind of engagement. Um, but this sort of leads me to my next question. So at Creative Generation, we've actually done a lot of work this year around a concept that we've coined as equitable intergenerational collaboration. And the goal of this body of work is to actually help inform organizations who may want to have a young adult advisory council to be able to sort of wayfind through that desire and craft the type of um, engagement with young people in leadership roles that's actually most appropriate to their development, right? So we talk about it as like, you sort of need to see the curve in the road before you pick out the speed that you're going to go. So here's your speedometer, right? And we provide some language and things like that. I'll drop the link in the show notes for our listeners. But the reason that I bring this up is because it super resonates with all of your findings and kind of speaks to the point that the process of engagement between an arts and culture organization and their young adult advisory council is just as, or maybe more important than the product of whatever they're actually creating. So all of that to say, I'm curious about y'all's process, the intergenerational collaboration between you, Natalie, a student, and you, Bronwyn, a longtime researcher. Talk a little bit about how you approach conducting this work in an intergenerational way. I'll go first since I've done this a couple of times, um, <laughs> but I'm very curious to hear what Natalie's got to say as well. I think one of the re just tremendous uh, opportunities I've had, like just teaching. You know, I I I do research and evaluation all day long, and have done it for years. And ten years ago, I had the opportunity to step into a classroom space and 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 help bring other uh, emerging arts administrators along and help them understand data, research methods, how that can help them do their jobs. And honestly, the, the, the task of going back and trying to explain what I know to people who are younger and, and, and just coming into the field was so beneficial to me. I mean, I, I probably got more out of it that first year than the students did of like, 
you know, what are the basics of, of, of what, what I do all day long? And then later on, when we were, I was able to bring in these partnerships, one of the things that really, that it is every year the students would submit stuff, um, ideas for research proposals. That's just like, wow, I really would never have thought of that. Mm-hmm. Like really, um, that it, it is new ideas. It is what's top of mind for, for millennials and Gen Z, you know, what are the, what, what are they worried about? What do they care about? And um, so it is, it, it's an opportunity for the, this partnership that we've done. And the, this is the third in the series, you know, having a student idea and transform that into a really solid piece of research that addresses a concept that is important to the field. But I didn't see it. And now that we've published them, it's so clear to me how important it was. Um, so, so, so those pieces of it are, are really important. And then working together, you know, I had, uh, early in my career, I had a couple of really fantastic mentors who brought me along and who really modeled what it means to mentor someone, not just tell them what to do and wish them best of luck and see you on the other end, but to really walk through, these are the tasks, this is what needs to be done to, you know, here's the skills you need to gain, but to also listen to, is there, are are there new ideas for how we could do it? And to really, I empower a younger person to make decisions for themselves, to, to, I, I, something as simple as the title of the report. I think every single one of these report titles was not my idea. Um, so everything from that to, are there other ways we could do the interviews? Are there other ways we could collect the data and really being open so that you get that solid set of skills that you just need in order to do the work, but then open it up. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I just going off of that, Bronwyn was definitely a huge mentor to me. He taught me so much about just, you know, the process of research, but also how to go about things so thoughtfully um, and really intentionally. So kind of bringing it more towards the research side, we really wanted to be intentional about that as well. We wanted to be intentional about the people that we talked to. Uh, That's why we kind of broke it up into multiple categories, participants, managers, and then even the young adult advisory councils that we talked to were both uh, there was two groups within that, a younger group, which was usually late teens to early 20s young adults. And then there was a group kind of that 20 young adults to the 30s. So we kind of had this really large spread of participants, um, which was so insightful for us Uh we learned so many different things talking to these different age groups. And I think the the one of my favorite quotes from a manager was, she, I think she was in her 30s. And she's like, I love when I get to work with teens and young adults because they call me on my stuff. Mm-hmm. And I love that. I love it because we can then make it better right? They're not afraid to speak their mind. They're not afraid to say things differently. Um, they're they're able to see things really clearly and get it across to me. And from there, we're able to build something better. And uh, I, th- I there's so many of those stories that we heard just uh, our managers ranged probably from 30s to 50s um, 
And so even all of them had very similar insights. I love hearing what participants have to say. They give me such a different perspective and vantage point that I would have had before. And it's so impactful, not only to me, but organizations, right? Mm-hmm. We have a older uh, advisor, not advisory board, main board for an organization, fiduciary board, what, whatever you want to call it. Um, and they needed help during the pandemic. They didn't know how to connect with people. They didn't know how to fundraise. They didn't even know what social media was. And so we actually used our advisory board to come and talk to our fiduciary board about all of these things. Mm-hmm. They you know, taught them and that's how we were able to thrive during the pandemic. So there's just so many of those stories but kind of roping it back to to Bronwyn and I it, that has also just been a tremendous thing and it was such an aha moment just as we were talking like wow this is kind of like a mini young adult advisory council me and Bronwyn I she mentored me so much and I helped I did a few things to her as well so uh, that's pretty awesome thank you for the question well, it's funny, as I listen to both of you, I'm reminded of the aha moment that I have, which is that I'm not, in fact, a young person anymore. I I think growing up, I was always on these types of boards and uh, councils and things like that, and was the young person that was uh, bringing the radical ideas or the ones, you know, the radical ideas of round two, because it happened before I was ever at the table. And, you know, and now I'm often reminded that I am, you know, I see my gray hairs and I see my, you know reaction to the time change that we just had and I you know I'm I'm not uh not in high school anymore certainly but it, it's always interesting because it brings forth the notion that it's all cyclical right that in one moment we are the young person and in another we're on the the sort of adult side of that equation or the veteran side perhaps um an elder uh and that there is always a cycle. So at some point, like these young people will be the adult counterparts. And so I wonder, as you think about that cyclical nature of different types of programs that center the power of young people, how do you think we can as a field, or what advice might you give to the field about cultivating those conditions for intergenerational collaborations, especially for those folks that are moving from the younger side to the elder side, as time goes on every day? I think one of the biggest things is just listening Mm. and then being able to and ready to act upon what you hear. Um, I feel like a lot of young adults, uh, youth, they, again, they tell you what they think unless, you know, sometimes they need help kind of learning how to be able to put that into words, but a lot of times they're ready to share their ideas, their feelings. And so supporting that, um, listening to it and, you know, creating change from what they're saying. I heard that a lot through uh, both managers and participants is, you know, once they come to you, they need to know that you're there to support them. You need to set them up for success. You have to uh, be able to elevate that feedback to change. I think that was the exact quote and I loved it. Um, it was one of the ones we I highlighted so many times in my notes. Um, I think that's one of the biggest things and being thoughtful about how you're setting people up for success. I think even if you come from a group uh, as a participant and, and you become a manager, there's always going to be things that you don't know. Um, I, there's such a wealth of knowledge out there and people have so many different uh, viewpoints or thoughts based on the experiences that they've been through, which are all 
so impactful to an organization and by listening to them and you know coming through them together you're able to come across with the best product and so uh really setting them up for success and a part of that also i think is as you're building these groups is laying out what is feasible for them to accomplish and what is not that is something that i heard from participants is you can't come in and uh just say that the young adult advisory council can do whatever they want right that we could do whatever because they're going to shoot for the moon right they're going to say wow we want usher to perform at our concert or something amazing but kind of out of the scope of what they do right for this one example was an opera company and so they were um thinking no we have to set parameters right for a project so they're able to be successful these are your uh, what we can do feasibly within our organization and what we can't and kind of laying it out from there. Um, a lot of participants don't have that organizational knowledge. So being able to summarize it or present it in a not bite-sized version, but a a version that they're able to see in the short term or in a very abbreviated sense, because they're not in every organizational meeting. They're not talking to leadership as often as a lot of these managers are. So um, kind of setting those parameters, I think are the biggest ones. Um, I'm gonna tell y'all a hard truth. Uh, and that is that I know a lot of people my age who are tired. Mm. We, you know, we've all been through what we've been through over the past couple of years, but we're tired and We've seen a lot. We've been beat up a little bit. We've seen things fail. We've seen things that we love fail. We've seen our own brilliant ideas either ignored or turned out not to be so brilliant as we thought they were. And it breeds a little bit of cynicism and sometimes more than a little bit. And for thinking about meaningfully interacting and collaborating with younger people, it's kind of on us to set aside some of our cynicism and to to recognize it for what it is. You know, when somebody has some young person comes along with a lot of enthusiasm and a and a what they think is the best idea ever, it's really easy to respond with, I'm "Sure, mm -hmm. you know, well, maybe that would work, but probably it won't because I've seen it. I've seen it all." And it's really on us to step, to put aside the cynicism, to put aside the exhaustion, to put aside the frustration and kind of come to eat that moment anew and to, to not bring all our baggage to that moment and to really see the opportunity. And I'm not saying that that's easy to do. And, um, you know, I think everybody I know who, who has a job has more work to do then there is time to do. And so we're in a, always in a state of taking shortcuts. And some, unfortunately, sometimes those shortcuts are, no, we're not going to do that. I'm too tired. I just don't have the resources. We just don't have the bandwidth. And so ta taking a pause and taking that moment to really look at that young person and think about their idea and really engage with that moment in the moment and then see, maybe it's possible. Maybe it's not. Maybe it's an idea beyond, beyond the scope of what your agency does. 
but take the time to consider and to have a meaningful engagement with a person or a group of people with their ideas and see what is possible. I love that. That's such a wonderful, wonderful note. And it actually speaks to the very notion of this podcast, which is why change? Why are we changing the way that we do things? And that can be in sort of the positive with that enthusiasm. Why change? Like we got to, you know, and then also like, but why? Why do we need to? Let's actually get down to the that notion. And you know, what's interesting is as we talk to folks like yourselves all around the world, one of the things that we seek to understand is sort of what keeps you ticking. Bronwyn, what what sort of leads you to be able to do those hard things or what what leads you, Natalie, to to engage in a process that maybe feels a little scary <laughs> at the beginning. So I we have these same five questions that I'd love to ask both of you in rapid succession to get your answers and, and help us figure out a little bit about what makes you tick. So are you both ready? Ready. All right. First, we'll start with you, Natalie, and then jump to Bronwyn. Who inspires you? Since I was very little, my biggest inspiration has been my sister. Uh, she is a few years older than me. She's a, a doctor in New York right now. She's a, an ER doctor, saving lives left and right. But uh, she is the hardest worker that I know, the the smartest person that I know, and really a very thoughtful individual. And so I always kind of strive to match her. <laughs> I won't say beat her because I don't know if I could. She's pretty awesome, but I'll say match her. <laughs> <laughs> Um, these, these days I am really inspired by artists who are investing their time and their skills and their social capital, um, really trying to address problems and build a stronger democracy. Um, and I'm thinking about artists who've, uh, you know, they've recognized that art isn't necessarily enough to fix problems and they're going above and beyond. You know, Hank Willis Thomas and Michelle Wu, who co-founded Four Freedoms, um, the artists that I work with as part of this group, Artists for Democracy, you know, we're building organizations to do other stuff. We know that art is part of the solution, but we got to do more. Um, Catherine Andrews, who's founded the Judith Center, Sarah DeLayden, she co-organizes this group, Rural Urban Flow in Wisconsin. All these artists are going beyond and those folks who are willing to take the time and the energy and the resources and put it towards real social change that's inspirational to me next what keeps you motivated um honestly i'm going to tell you the truth the news cycle keeps me motivated but mm. I'm very careful about my consumption of news. There's a lot of bad news out there. And what I like to do with news is I like to get the headlines. I want to know what's happening and know what are the problems that, that and kind of, but then dig into the ones and really read deeply on them and not just read the hot takes. Hot takes are exhausting. Yeah. Um, and to stay aware enough that I can think about where can I take action, whether it's on my day job or in some of my, my artistic practice, or my democracy practice, or as a teacher, there are places and, and I want to stay informed and act. 
That's so funny. Brown and I, from our study, part of my um, uh, literature review, you have to, part of our class also is learning about what sources that you can trust and doing the background research, right? So you're looking at the authors, you're looking at if this is a sponsored project, all of these things. And so a lot of times when my dad looks at the news, I'm like, did you uh, look at who sponsors this? Do you see who's authoring it? Do you, I totally took that from our study where I'm like quizzing him if he's looking at the news in the same way that we look at our reports for this study. So that's funny. Um, I would say something that motivates me is impact. I got into the nonprofit field because I wanted to have an impact um, on, on people in the world, on my community. And so really driving for that with whatever I do is, is creating, uh, helping the world be a little bit better place is probably my biggest motivator. Next up, where are you most grounded? I would personally say nature. I getting outside. Same, walking, exactly yeah. the same. Uh-huh. Nature. Yep, or traveling, right, Brennan? Mm-hmm. Yeah, those would be nature, my biggest traveling. things. Mm-hmm. Being outdoors, out in the in the woods, hiking on the trails. Hundred percent. Birds, mm-hmm. all of it. Birds. <laughs> okay, here's a stumper. How do you stay focused? Personally, I surround myself with quietness. I, if, if I work from home, I'm much more productive than if I work from the office because I love communicating with people. I love talking with people. But sometimes if you're looking at a spreadsheet full of data, it's really hard to do it when every few minutes somebody walks by you trying to talk to you. So uh, I sometimes kind of isolate myself or get some good noise-canceling headphones. I think those are my biggest focus tools. But that's also, I'm very fortunate to be able to kind of have my own little space or to be able to get these. So I recognize that that is quite a luxury. Um, I'm a big fan of just kicking myself in the butt and getting it done. <laughs> Make a list. Um, when I'm when when I'm having trouble focusing, I ask myself, what am I avoiding? There's usually a task I'm avoiding. And once I can name it, then I can decide either to do it then or to set a time to do the thing I'm avoiding. And then then I can free myself up to get stuff done. And it works? It works. Okay, I have to try that. And lastly, why change? Well, life is change. If we are alive, we must change. The world is changing around us. I got to keep up. I got to live. <laughs> I would agree with that. I think positivity, success, impact, it's not in stasis. Uh, each is always uh, evolving and can be better. If, even if it's not for us, we should work for it for others. And so recognizing that even if it's okay for you right now, it's probably not for everyone. So evolving that to to really be impactful and beneficial for the wider world, I would say, our community. It's more fun to change. Yeah. You get to try new things. Like who wants to do everything the same all every time? Well, I tend try to new music. <laughs> read it a book a... that isn't the sort of thing you usually read. Change is good. That is a wonderful note to end on. So uh, thank you both, Natalie and Bronwyn, for joining me 
for this interview today and this episode of the Why Change podcast. I We will continue to follow the work and we're really excited about this great contribution to our field. So thank you. Thank you for having us. Thanks a lot. All right, and we're back. So Jeff, uh, tell me, Tell me about this interview. Tell me a little bit about what interested you in them. I know you, there was this report that was sure. really exciting. Um, so, so tell me a little bit more about kind of what drove you to bring them together, bring them into the podcast to have this conversation and, 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 and what your reflections are. Yeah, for sure. You know, it's fascinating because I'll tell you the story of literally two weeks beforehand this report came across my desk. I'm on the newsletter of the LA Commission um, on, on Arts and Culture, and um, of which Bronwyn works at. And the um, report popped up, and I was like, oh, this is really interesting, and this is honestly so needed, because a lot of the similar reports, and I think I say this in the interview with them, you know, that talk about youth advisory bodies and things of that nature are from like the 90s, they're a little dated, and they're from outside of the sector. So I was excited to just see the context, even just in the title that said in arts and culture organizations, to know, you know, what is different? What what do we know that is best practice in youth engagement, youth leadership, youth cultivation, as decision makers in, um, in the nonprofit sector, but specifically in arts and culture? And then, Later that day, I had a coaching call with a collaborator of ours that was wondering the very same thing. And it was just so nice to say, hey, and here's this actual report. We don't need to wonder. We don't need to recontextualize. Here is knowledge from the field, from folks doing it right now um, of contemporary you know, stature that can carry this forward. Um, so that was great. Yeah. For me, as you mentioned, I was a young adult advisory board member of different organizations. I used to work for a youth empowerment agency that um, was sort of my start in, in youth development, where I learned how youth adult partnerships work and, and all of that. And it's no doubt influenced my work today. So I was really excited to see those things come together and to sort of interrogate it. So I reached out to both of them and said, hey, you know, why don't you actually join us together as this intergenerational pair to talk about the work. And I was just really excited to both learn about the outcomes. And I think we can come back to what those are, but also their process of how they actually embodied and were influenced by the things, the very things that they were learning in the moment to carry out the process. Um, but yeah, having not had that exact experience, Carla, what was your take on the conversation and the report and everything that you learned about what they did? Yeah. You know, whenever I hear about folks putting together youth councils, I always get into an interrogative space for that very reason that I was part of youth councils um, as a teen. And um, now being in the seat that I'm in at Arts Administrators of Color and, you know, having the conversations that I'm having across the sector, particularly around a lack of representation and a lack of uh, diverse experiences, um, everything from this notion of, you know, not just cultural diversity, but also this notion of gender and uh, religion and, and, and cultural practices um, that go even beyond race. Um, 
you know, those things for me are always kind of top of mind for me. Is like we're, mm -hmm. we haven't really seen too much of this notion of youth councils really bear fruit within our sector. Um, we're not, you know, we're we're still kind of in this um, cyclical discussion about how organizations can really cultivate a more diverse workforce, particularly mm -hmm. leadership. And so, um, you know, and I know, and I, I'll say this first and foremost, as a young person, uh, I don't think that you should have your path laid out for you from the jump, right? right. You know, this, this notion that, you know, when you're a junior in high school, you know what you're going to do for the rest of your life, I think is not something that is, um, I don't think that's feasible anymore. Mm -hmm. um, so, so even with that though, um, there are young people who are like, this is what I want to do for the rest of my life. I was nine years old and saw a play and was like, this is what I want to do for the rest of my life. And I'm still writing plays, but mm -hmm. still, you know, the path has, has, has shifted. So um, I'm always, but I'm curious about um, in these councils, who's asked to be at the table, mm -hmm. right? Is it our straight A students, our high achievers, if you will, and I'm using air quotes here. Right. Um, but, you know, and, and are those people, um, are those young folks um, really reflective of the needs of young folks writ large within an artistic space? So, and and how are we really creating the pathways mm -hmm. right, for these young folks to move from um, these experiences, which, is, which are highly positive, highly democratic, and highly intentional, and I loved hearing Natalie talk about this call for intentionality in the work that they do and this um, notion of mental and psychological space um, that I really loved hearing. But, you know, once the year is done or the time is done, the term, if you will, in, in these youth councils, how are we now then building the bridges that lead to uh to to a long-term pathway that then ultimately creates um opportunities and lands these young folks in positions that then um as you mentioned you know further cultivate the conditions mm -hmm. um for young folks in the future so how do we really strengthen that and that has been that, that, that is for me like the biggest question. It's not about what they're doing because I think it's great. I I, I think that it has adjusted and what they're doing is adjusting to, to, to the current time. But, um, but I love to hear it. And a lot of it was my experience as a young person 20, 30 years ago. Um, so, so for me is what is that next step that's missing and how can we have some really intentional conversations with folks like Bronwyn and Natalie and other folks who really want to create these pathways for young folks um, through the multiple ways of learning um, so that we have more of this happening um, and we see it actually shifting the landscape. Yeah, no, there's so many things of what you just said that I agree with and that I want to underscore and and sort of in my mind I had a lot of the same thoughts in the context of of some of my work right so you know in the creative generation research back from 2019 you know we found that there were some 
necessary shifts. Um, we call them paradigm shifts that needed to take place in terms of individual people, in terms of organizations, in terms of the communities and sectors um, that support young people's creativity um, in order to reach sort of this ideal. And the reality was, is that all of those paradigm shifts are driven by people. So as change makers, we really need to focus on those pathways to leadership because when people are in leadership roles, be they you know, in title and stature or just in influence, um, that they're really the ones that are driving the change. And so these pathways that you're talking about from, you know, young creative to young adult advisory council member to practitioner in the field to leader of an organization or initiative or whatever, what have you, um, those are really, really important. Yes. That said, I want to also underscore what you said about not pre-planning it and knowing the outcome, you know, decades in advance. It, it, it's almost one of those things, you know, in the arts, we talk about having like a studio practice and it means like you're constantly practicing something and that you're not going to ever define it as a process or, uh, you know, a hard and fast like gridiron law, but instead it's an evolving practice. It's something you do all the time. So it makes me wonder if there is a practice of developing leaders, that's something that's never done. It's just a commitment, a, a, a thing that happens from organizations all the time. It's not like we say, oh yes, we're going to have those high achieving young artists in our program. Some of them get onto a youth, youth advisory board. Some of them then become our staff. And then of that, someone becomes picked by the board to be the executive director. But instead, that there's this intentional practice of cultivating the next generation of change makers in order to respond to the community. Because as you were talking about the social identities of folks and the needs of communities, those are things that are always going to be changing. So if we have a sort of a steadfast, locked in place process for pipelining people to positions we're going to miss the mark. You know, we have to remain responsive and flexible. And so that's something I just want to like underscore, because for me, you know, I couldn't have told you that I would be an organizational leader of sort of like a research think tank type thing in the arts when I was a young adult advisory council member of like a youth conference right. <laughs> in my home state. Right. You know, I never knew that that was going to be the path, but I no doubt apply the skills that I did gain and hone there. Yeah. in my work today. Um, and so I think that there's, yeah, there's a lot of of sort of latitude that's needed in order to make this work. And I think we just need to be comfortable with the fact that it's never going to be perfectly defined. Yeah. And, you know, something that just bubbled up for me too is that um, there are tons of youth leadership programs across the United States and, and probably globally um, that, that exist um, that aren't necessarily specific to the arts, but specific to leadership itself. Mm -hmm. But often because the arts aren't seen as a viable career pathway, our young artists and, and young arts leaders aren't necessarily brought into those conversations and into those programs in meaningful ways. So um, so I think it's it's kind of twofold, right? One is how are we continuing to 
move and adapt and grow and create more opportunities for young folks who are really vested and 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 have deep comfort in this particular sector uh and uh what is our challenge to youth youth mentorship programs and youth leadership programs that currently exist to say, hey, you know, the arts are not just your ephemeral moment for the flyer that you're going to create to recruit or mm-hmm. to have a culminating event. Right. Uh, young artists, and you know, I, I love you know Bronwyn's conversation around democracy and her passion for it and you know and 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 the arts are so and we know this and we've probably had this conversation a million times both on this podcast and and offline uh is that the arts are so uniquely positioned to speak to any issue area but it is particularly a civic tool right right and i think that that type of engagement i'm going to simplify everything that you just said to talk about like the civic engagement and the application of sort of creativity right if we backtrack that into the cultivation of creativity we're actually talking about sort of this hybrid notion around arts integration so i think in other episodes of the podcast i've talked about sort of this you know enriched understanding and approach of arts integration, which resulted from a project that we did last year, Creative Generation. But, you know, it's um, one of those elements is civic engagement. And it's funny because we shared this graphic and I'll drop the link in the show notes for people, but we shared this graphic of the different types of arts integration, one of them being civic and social um, engagement. And people, you know, teachers are like, well, what is that? What academic subject does that engage with? Where I would also argue, at least in the United States, civics is one of the, you know, core academic or well-rounded subjects in our federal education law. So there's that, but it's like, well, it's actually not, it's not like a thing. Like we're not talking about how a bill becomes a law through the arts, you know, what was that uh, show uh, with the songs? Schoolhouse Rock. Rock. We're not talking about Schoolhouse Rock, but what we're talking about is the actual engagement in democratic process in you know joint decision making power sharing all these things and if we're doing that in a creative way and we're using our artistic and cultural and creative skill base in order to find that common ground and engage people in new ways and make those decisions and find consensus that's the type of deep like civically engaged arts integrated learning that we're talking about i'm not talking about like standard space in a class with a written assignment and a standardized test i'm talking about real life experiences in the arts, in the context of civic learning, that then drive that capability so that should one of these young adult advisory board members go be a board member of the arts nonprofit, or go be a lawyer, or go be, uh, you know, a parent who brings their kids to cultural events in their city, they understand how that arts and civic engagement are intrinsically tied together. so that when there is a, a movement that needs to occur in their city for some change to happen, that's part of the discourse. And I think that that's, that's really when we talk about the pathway, mm. I think we might have, we might have oversimplified it, Carla, in saying like, it's, you know, to like potential jobs. It's actually about how, like the pathway of how we engage in the world and, and the frame that is being constructed, that the, the that's being constructed by these young people at a young age to then view the world and understand how they can engage in it. And that's the 
that's the really beneficial pathway, mm-hmm. I think. Yeah. So to and sort it, of bring this home, I would just say the principles that are outlined in this report, none of it is shocking. It's all right. sort of like, yeah, of course, of course that's the way. But it is really reaffirming to have those those guideposts for organizations to cultivate that experience so that they can sort of curate the you know the sequence of events that launch that pathway for young people and Mm -hmm. that's something that actually really hasn't been done in our field before and I think that that's really exciting though it might be a little reductive it's really really exciting I agree I agree well, Carla, my final question for you is, would you be on a youth advisory council again today with everything you know now? <laughs> you know, I would, because I love to talk. You know? <laughs> <laughs> and that is why you are a podcast host. No, I no, appreciate I, it. I love being, the thing that I loved about being on youth council, specifically in Chicago, uh, was being able to meet other young folks from across the city that were from communities that weren't my own. Mm-hmm. And um and 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 the co-learning that happens in those spaces uh are truly the reason why I am still so very grounded in this city, even when the wind hurts my face. Mm-hmm. Cause it's so cold, but, um, you know, and, 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 you know, not to make light of it, but, but they are incredibly important opportunities. And I think that the adults that, uh, that facilitate these opportunities and these councils for young folks, uh, I come from a youth development background as well. It takes a very special kind of person to 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 lead these spaces to co-lead these spaces and to also know when to step back and allow young people to lead in those spaces and and to um where then the adults are actually in in their own place of learning and that's also something that i heard from the interview that i really enjoyed so um, I absolutely would. As a parent, I would encourage my own child to take part in them uh, because to me, those are the informal ways of learning that lead to greater understanding and bridge building and and I think uh, creating the world that we want to see, that beautiful future that we always talk about. Yeah, I totally agree. And I think that's a really wonderful note to end on, I think. Yeah. you know young people taking the reins towards that beautiful future is a nice a nice ending note carla let's go yeah well with that we'll wrap up this episode of the why change podcast thanks carla for hosting thank you to our two wonderful guests for sharing all of their insights and um into their work uh and for the work itself and you know thank you all so much for tuning in and listening to this episode of the why change podcast all we'll right catch you next time All right, catch you next time. Bye. I hope you enjoyed today's episode of Why Change, the podcast for a creative generation. All sources discussed in this episode are located in the show notes. If you haven't already, be sure to follow us on social media, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn. Also, 
you can write us at info at creative-generation.org. We would love to hear your ideas, the topics you want to learn about, and why change matters to you. This episode was produced by me, Jeff M. Poulin. Our artwork is by Bridget Woodbury. Our editor is Katie Rainey. The podcast theme music is by Distant Cousins. A special thanks to our contributors, co-hosts, and the team at Creative Generation for their support.